Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Holly Golightly. Sorry, I mean Luke Clancy, here with another week's worth of fascination compressed into a handy half hour. And this time, artist Aches explains why street art is a perfect pandemic art form. Composer Jennifer Walsh rediscovers the life of a travelling musician. Jennifer O'Mara decodes the special variety of chills that binaural audio provides. And Rob Long is here with his martini shot. But we start with our latest diary from Jennifer Walsh who has been, ever so briefly, back on the road for a new premiere, but hardly leading, even ever so briefly, the once normal life of a working musician. Musicians travel a lot, and they love to give each other advice about different venues, festivals, cities, most often about food. This hotel has a do-it-yourself waffle hour. That one is next to an amazing Vietnamese restaurant. This venue has stunning harbour views. And that festival? Well, they give everyone boxes of chocolates instead of flowers. Every piece of advice is a gift. But over the last month or two, As we tried briefly to return to something which even slightly resembled normal musical life, the advice took on a different tone. It ranged over new topics, with a frequency that approached frenzy. This country wants a test depending on where you've been in the last 14 days. That country wants a test depending on your nationality rather than on your residency. This country wants a PCR test. That country will accept an antigen test, or maybe even a lamp test, because did you hear they've brought those in at Heathrow? But only for Hong Kong and Italy. This country is doing live streams with no audience. That country is doing concerts with socially distanced audience and that country is doing concerts with no social distance because they claim track and trace will catch any cases but would you really feel safe playing there? This country is a hot zone or not a red zone or not a risk area or not that country is on a safe list or a travel corridor, or a green list, or not. This flight was cancelled. This other flight was cancelled. Now this other, other flight has been cancelled. This airline gives you your money back, but that one only gives you vouchers. This lab says the test results should be with you in 48 hours. That lab says you can pay 200 extra to get them in a day. In Lithuania, they give you a test result in 90 minutes. In Vienna, they test you when you land. This venue has a stick two meters long to spike the performer's positions. That venue has a stick one and a half meters long. And that venue? Well... It didn't feel too good 
That's all I'm saying. It's hard to keep track of it all. At times it is completely overwhelming. But in the small hours of the night, in a deserted hotel in a city under curfew, when the panic flares, those endless texts and emails are a comfort. They show a community sharing information, trying to help one another. And that's a start. The latest diary of a plague year from Jennifer Walsh there and the music in the piece was Reincarnate People While They're Still Alive by Jennifer Walsh. Now... Over Halloween, the Bram Stoker Festival happened in Dublin, though not completely in Dublin, as, like any other 2020 festival, it's very much been an online event. But rather than reconfigured for the new regime, some of the events were built for socially distanced enjoyment. One of those, Eternal, is a production by the UK company Darkfield, whose members began creating experimental theatre in tunnels under London Bridge, and later in the streets of London using a mixture of phone apps, headphones and Live performance. For the festival, Darkfield created an audio-only horror piece designed and indeed specified to be listened to in bed, alone, in the dark, and specifically while lying on the right-hand side of the bed. Our online reviewer Jennifer O'Mara of TCD joined us for a debrief. Basically, it's a way of allowing you experience a, a performance just through your ears. I mean, some people might call that radio drama. Yeah, exactly. They're taking advantage of the kind of immersive nature of sound um, and even their request that they make at the start, you know, that you listen through this, through earphones, that you close your eyes for the duration of it. And so they're trying to block out, I suppose, any other sensory input to make it as immersive as possible. This is in the context of the Bram Stoker Festival, which is a kind of like a Halloween festival that celebrates the the Irish writer and, and inventor of Dracula. Yeah, it's been running for a few years now and they always have interesting and often quite experimental um, productions. Um, Darkfield had planned to have an event last year at it as well called Seance, which was going to be in a, um, a shipping container and it had to be cancelled actually at the last minute due to a sort of related tragedy in the UK in a shipping container. Um, so they they didn't get to execute it last year. And it seems now they've moved more online. So in addition to Eternal, which was the project specifically for the Bram Stoker Festival, they also have one called Visitors and another called Double that is aimed at two people who were who are meant to do this at home opposite each other on a in a kiss at a kitchen table. So um, using that as a kind of set. This is something that came up then with Eternal where you were required or directed to experience this from your bed and they become even more specific in terms of telling you, you know, which side of the bed to be on. You know, we're listening to one man talk to us about the sounds in his house and the kind of threats from outside which are always kind of quite vague when you describe it there isn't a lot of narrative drive going on there i mean if if you went to see a play with that content how satisfied would you be i guess yeah it's that kind of minimal narrative and it's all about the atmosphere and the kind of intimacy and i think that's something it it does really well it's really effective at taking advantage of the fact that the audience is supposed to be alone in their 
bedroom in the dark and they're entirely reliant on the sounds that they're hearing to try and understand thinking about sound in general and how much more so than with sight it's, it can be more ambiguous and we don't necessarily know what we're trying to what we're hearing at different points we have to try and identify it and that you can kind of hear beyond walls where you can't see beyond walls so there's always that sense often really well used in horror films as well but um, we fear the unknown and that sound is often unknown until we kind of identify it or see what it what's the corresponding element is What they've done that's very effective is that they've played off that, the kind of unknownness of not seeing anything, with an audio that is incredibly realistic. I mean, it's one of the drawbacks of, of say, video VR is that the resolution of the headsets is not good enough to really produce a feeling of life. But with spatialized audio, they use binaural audio, the sensation that you are in the same space as the sounds is very, very intense. Yeah, exactly. And that they've built this into the design of it in terms of, you know, telling you to lie on the right of your bed and then later in the production that um, some of the most kind of evocative sounds, they come, you know, at you from the left and um, particularly the kind of like animalistic whispering at one point um, that's really quite uncomfortable and I could definitely feel myself like reacting um, to it. Um, and that, that sense in which it feels very, very close and taking advantage, I suppose, of the things that we see with podcasts, for example, in terms of people finding that quite comforting or intimate at points. But then if you turn that around and turn it into a kind of horror experience, it also makes it more jarring and um, more uncomfortable. There seemed to be very strong physiological effects, I, I thought. You know, I was lying on my bed and you're experiencing this as though there is somebody in the room and stuff happening about you. I, I thought when somebody, at one point somebody, let's let's little bit of spoilers here, at one point somebody lies down on the bed beside you. I thought I could feel the bed moving and I thought, wow, they are really leveraging sound in a way that, that seems well in advance if I was watching this horror movie. Yeah, and they really take advantage of our imaginations and how sound can kind of activate that, that we will fill in the blanks almost based on things we've you know, seen or heard in the past. And so I didn't have that experience of thinking I could feel someone um, moving in the bed. But I think definitely there's a there's a way with sound that if you're properly immersed in it and if you're not distracted by anything else, then your mind will provide the rest of the script or the rest of the story, so to speak. So we might have been having, you know, different reactions to what was the same kind of audio stimulus, so to speak. Yeah, I guess I'm just more of a scaredy cat. Were you in the house alone? I was wondering, is that, was that I was in the house alone, so I, I was completely unsure about whether, because the, the sound is very realistic, so you're not totally sure whether that has happened. Uh, a bump in the room next door, footsteps on the ceiling above you. The intensity of it is that you do begin to doubt the fictional nature of what's going on. It's interesting in that regard, in terms of the traditions of haunted houses and narratives, and as you say, the being by yourself. And it's definitely something I've noticed where I'm much more likely all the time to pick up on sounds and creaks if I'm by myself, the things that the background noises that you don't really pay attention to you know, if you're sort of on edge anyway, then the sound suddenly becomes threatening. You tend to see this as part of a, a larger turn in kind of cultural production to put a real emphasis on sound. This is definitely part of a bigger move towards sound culture um, in recent years and particularly um, 
with things like podcasts and audiobooks and sound focused theater plays even. Um, so there are lots of examples of this, including of course the huge trend for podcasts and um, this particular eternal experience reminded me of something like Welcome to Night Vale, the long running podcast series coming out of the US where you have again a very unusual world being developed via audio and via sound but one that would never be possible to render visually and it's taking advantage of people's um, audio experiences. Even more recently though in Dublin so thinking about plays like Beckett's Room that took place at the Gate Theatre last year as part of um, the Dublin Theatre Festival which was described as a play without performers and it was entirely sound focused. So thinking about the challenges that creates, but also the possibilities for, you know, theatre practitioners, for sound designers, for actors. And this is something that I've developed um, a seminar series to begin to explore through the Trinity Long Room Hub. What, what does that turn mean, do you think? Why have we turned in that direction? I think partly it's due to an over-reliance on screens, the fact that we're constantly inundated with digital imagery with scrolling through emails and social media and I think it's partly just a, a turn in the other direction a, a wanting to kind of detach from that that you know it's it's actually draining to spend so much time obviously looking at screens and it's tiring and it's bad for your eyes and all of those things and I think people want opportunities to step away from that and to just listen to things and it goes back to a lot of the storytelling traditions and as you as you mentioned earlier audio dramas and radio plays and things like that which have had a long history you know going back to um, the start of the last century and had there's always been that kind of trend going on in the background but that with digital sound and with podcasting and even with audiobooks there's this emphasis on trying to listen more intently rather than you know, constantly wanting to be looking at things um, when we're spending so much time staring at screens. I was talking to Jennifer O'Mara of TCD there about Eternal at this year's Bram Stoker Festival. And you can attend double one of the other Darkfield productions Jennifer mentioned using the same sound tech online this week. See darkfield.org for tickets.
With galleries shuttered and theatres gone dark, the colours of a cluster of murals on buildings across Cork City couldn't come at a better time. The paintings are part of a new festival, Ardu, which takes to the byways of the city in the centenary of the burning of Cork. Among artists wielding spray cans for the event are Mazer, Deirdre Breen, Gareth Joyce and Aches, the Dublin artist best known for his mural of Savita Halapanava. For Ardu, Aches has created a mammoth hurler on Anglesey Street. Rachel Andrews went to see the work in progress and hear why street art is the perfect pandemic form. It's always good to have in the back of your head where you're painting so it fits in nicely with the people who have to look at it every day. I don't want to paint something that the people, that like the locals, aren't happy with because that kind of can have a negative effect on them having to look at something they don't want to see every day. So it's nice to kind of get to know the area and, and paint something that fits that area or reacts to that area. Standing on Anglesey Street in the centre of Cork, the morning is bright, cold, sunny. I'm looking at a large image that spans the entire side of a building. The image is brightly coloured, red, blue, green. It's a mural of a hurler, caught in mid-motion, about to slam his stick against a ball. The image is fluid, balletic, the hurler captured in the middle of a flow. Around me, people who are passing also stop and look up. At the coffee shop, on the opposite side of the road, those queuing for takeaway drinks hold up their phones. Two men pause in conversation, get sidetracked, start a new discussion about the mural. The image is part of Ardu, a new street art festival in Cork, which takes to the city streets and alleyways during October and November. It's a festival that can still live, even in lockdown, and the artist, Aches, who has painted the hurler, arrived in Cork from Dublin a few days ago. It's kind of the perfect uh, job for a pandemic because you wear gloves and a mask anyway, so... <laughs> and you're on your own, you don't come into contact with anyone, you're up on a lift, so... I use photo references, so I went down to the park with my friend and, lucky enough, he helped me out for about two hours just poking a slitter up and down the field. So I got, a, I think it was like 700 photos that I took, so I had to edit them down, pick out the best tree that I wanted. My name is Aikes and I'm an artist that specialises in murals and studio work. It's an image of um, someone hurling, uh, they're taking a 65 and I think hurling is just a great representative of Ireland. Um, it's the national sport and it's it's very historical um, and Cork is obviously a stronghold of, of hurling and I played it myself up until about two or three years ago. So. It's a big influence on me as well. And I've wanted to paint a hurler for quite a while now, and I think this is the, the perfect opportunity to paint it. As I stand watching Aches prepare his lift to move up to the top of the wall, a group of excitable teenagers in uniform arrives with their teacher. 
She asks the students to line up in front of the mural and then walks to the other side of the road to take a picture. The students are shuffling, half embarrassed, half giddy, but they look to me as if they feel they have the right to be there, in front of the giant piece of work. This is their city, the painting is for them. I use the additive colour theory, which is RGB, red, green and blue. I like using this because it's, it replicates what you see on a screen, on an LED screen. Everything's made up of red, green and blue lights and they shine at different percentages to give off different hues of colours. And obviously everyone looks at a screen all day, every day, pretty much now, whether it's in their office or on the phone or wherever it is. So I like the idea of using this colour theory to replicate that. And the idea is that when... The colours overlap, they create brighter colours as opposed to subtractive colour theory, which they get darker, which is the printing process. So when red and green mix, they make yellow. When red and blue mix, they make magenta. And when blue and green mix, they make cyan and so on. And when all three mix, they make white. But if, if you mix a dark red with a light green, you'll, you'll get a more greeny yellow, if you get me. So it's, it's a nice effect when, when they all overlay. They create kind of a rainbow effect which gives off a really um, saturated kind of piece filled with colour, which I think people appreciate, especially if it's on a wall that's probably been sitting there and it's been grey for a couple of years. To add that pop of colour makes a big difference. It does make a difference. As the school children surround me, I once again look up high. We don't have large buildings in Ireland. This is only a two-storey house. But nonetheless, the scale, the colour, the image, it stops you, it pulls you in. It takes you away from the grey. It takes you out of the worry. That's the point, Aches tells me. It's not to paint someone famous, but to paint a picture that goes deeper, that means something more, a picture that will be for everyone. I like painting people I know, my friends, um, people that, that are like, personal meaning for me. While I was painting in Belfast, I was painting my friend and, and everyone comes up saying, am I supposed to know who it is or is it someone famous? But no, it's not It's not about the necessarily having to be a famous person or the figure being famous. It's, it's about the art piece. I thought about this quite a lot as well and I wanted to paint a mural that celebrates hurling as a sport and not a, a specific hurler. So I chose a friend of mine um, that wouldn't be known in Cork. And also... Like the jersey selection could be very tricky, so I kept it to just a plain T-shirt. <laughs> so before I took the reference images myself, I, I just took pictures from the internet to get an idea, and so I was sending it to one of the organisers, and it was a Kilkenny player and a Limerick player going up for the ball, and he was like, oh, I don't think that would be good down here. I said, no, no, this is just purely a representation of the idea, not, not what I'll be playing. Street artist Aches there, ending that report from Rachel Andrews and the murals of Ardu are currently on display at various locations across Cork City. And finally this time, the latest epistle from the front lines of the storytelling industrial complex as Rob Long is reminded of a difficult collaboration when he spots an old colleague on late-night television in his very latest Martini Shot. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. 
I once worked with a very talented actor who mostly worked in feature films. We didn't really know who he was when we were casting that particular role, but his agent and manager sent us his reel, which is a tape of a sample of some of his best work, and it was obvious from the very first clip that he was a gifted, smart, winning, and very funny guy. A few days later, he was in our office, we had a great meeting, and we cast him on the spot. But during production week, his performance was a little weird. I mean, he'd get it eventually after a few run-throughs, so we thought, hey, the guys from Feature Films, where they do a zillion takes of everything, he'll he'll get used to television, which is pretty much a shoot-it-and-move-on kind of operation. But shoot night came, and there was still something off about him, a depressed kind of energy, like he was underwater or something. But by then, it was too late to reshoot or recast. We just plowed through, and a day or so later, we were sitting in the editing room watching the actor float through the show like he'd been body-snatched. And we were baffled. What happened? Where did the electric performer we had expected go? Where was the guy from our office, the funny, engaging dude with the hilarious facial expressions? Where, in fact, were any facial expressions at all? Facial expressions, I'm sure you know, are crucial to the acting biz. You know, said our producer watching the rough cut, it's probably the medication he has to take. One of the side effects is a severely depressed energy level. Medication, I asked. Yeah, it's for some kind of brain thing, he said. Our lead has a brain thing, I asked. Oh, I didn't say that, the producer said. In fact, I'm not even allowed to tell you which brain thing specifically or about the medication he has to take for it. I only know because I had to arrange the physical exam and I, I saw his medical records. You see, actors in major roles always have to go for a complete doctor's physical exam to prove to the studio and to the insurers that they're healthy enough to theoretically last for the entire run of the series, which everybody hopes is 10 years or so. So let me get this straight, I asked. You knew all along that the lead actor in our comedy had a medical condition that forces him to take pills that make him boring. And you decided to hold this information back. I didn't decide, the producer said reasonably. It's the law. I was legally enjoined from saying anything. Medical records are private. I only know because I was the one who had to make sure a doctor came to the set to give him the injection right before we started shooting. Right before we started shooting, I said. Again, privacy laws, he said. And of course, our producer was right. Had he told us, we would have known all along that the actor was probably going to have to be recast. We would have figured out that the reason the actor was so great in features and so personable and alive in the room was because he could make it through a 35-minute meeting or a set of multiple takes without too much trouble. But a sustained six-hour shoot in front of an audience, well, that would just make his brain thing crave unfunny pills. Had we known... We would have taken action, and that would have been illegal. So instead, we spent $4 million for no reason. A few weeks ago, flipping through the channels late at night, I saw that same actor, this is now several years after we worked together on that baffling and doomed pilot, doing a public service announcement for his particular brain thing. You don't have to live with the shame and the embarrassment anymore, he was telling the television audience. There's powerful medication that can keep the disease in check, he was saying, chirpily, with energy and charm, with gusto and pep and an engaged, zesty delivery. 
with a star quality that can only be attained when he is off his meds. And for the rest of us, of course, it's usually the opposite situation. And that's it for this week. Next week, Extreme Jealousy. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long. And not a word of a lie, Rob will be here next week with another Martini Shot. The Daily Dose of Culture File is available all week long at 6.10pm in Classic Drive and we'll be back with the Culture File Weekly at 6.30pm next Saturday. Till then, bye now.